Welcome to This Must Be The Place, a podcast about communities and the people who build, support, and live in them. I'm your host, Greg Dunlap. Our guest today is Margot Bloomstein. Margot's an independent content strategy consultant, as well as the author of Content Strategy at Work, and most recently, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And I feel like the topic of trust has a lot of parallel to community management, so it seemed natural to have Margot in here to talk about it. So welcome to the show, Margot. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you. So I watched a talk recently where you mentioned you've been researching this book since like 2016. So like what got you interested in the topic of trust and what did the path to turning that into a book look like? Sure. Yeah. So in, um, in 2016, as you may remember, we were in the throes of a a kind of heated political moment that maybe would be determining the future of the country, but, um, but we had things well in hand and, uh, and we thought surely against like the the backdrop of so many decades where we had seen what happened when politicians were caught in a lie or when they were caught flip-flopping or playing fast and loose with the truth surely that that all of history would marshal around um around those problems and and kind of write itself and say well when the american public or or when the the media catches a politician catches them in the course of a lie that scuttles their campaign. They're, they're dead on arrival. And um, yeah, the, then we turn to the other person in the race. And we've seen that happen time, time and time again, but it didn't happen that time. Yeah. And I think that that caught my attention. And I was curious through the course of the campaign, we saw um, – we saw kind of creative revisions of history on both sides of the aisle. And I was curious why the reaction to those, um, those, that sort of editorial oversight, I guess, seemed to be changing. Why it seemed that folks were doubling down on the candidates that they supported, even when they would catch them in a lie, even when they would catch them acting in ways that violated their their core principles and the platform on which they were running. People were still basically saying, yep, that's the person for me. And it turned out it was more about the me, the identity of the voters and how voters thought of themselves and their own ability to evaluate information, less about the candidates. And um, my interest in that, in what was happening around trust and how we violate and can lose or maintain trust, um, that kind of spurred my interest in the topics in the book, because I think we saw those problems start in the space of politics and the media, what happens when you lose trust or what happens when you've got it and um, and are able to keep it? Why does that work for some politicians and some brands? It started in the realm of politics and media, but I think those the problems and challenges that we saw around trust, cynicism, gaslighting, and education, those issues now affect every industry. Um, and and brands and so many industries in the private sector and the public sector. Issues in cynicism and skepticism and trust undermine public health. Currently, as we're talking about vaccination, public vaccination programs, um, and certainly the new work happening around the COVID-19 vaccines, um, they're, they're not just being met with enthusiasm, but also a lot of cynicism, a lot of fear and doubt 
that will continue to affect public health. Um, And then we also see how in the private sector, so much marketing has fallen flat over the past year because more and more people don't believe everything they hear from brands that they thought they they knew well. Um, And we don't have the same kind of arbiters of truth. And as a result, when marketing is falling flat and sales cycles are taking longer, we need to figure out why don't people trust certain brands anymore? And if you're a brand, if you're a corporation, or if you're a community, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at how you can foster trust. And if that is by doing the same thing that you've been doing all along, which is no spoilers, but it's not, (laughs) but rather by looking at how we can empower people and educate people to kind of pull them back from from the brink and the the sort of claws of gaslighting, um, how we can educate them so they become smarter, more confident, more active participants as consumers in civic spaces and in the communities in which they, they kind of live and work and learn and play. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, I have a journalism background, and I was thinking that, you know, distrust with the media has been going back for decades now, right? I mean, it's been growing since all the way back when I was in college, and that distrust in all of our public institutions, um, be they government or, you know, utilities or anything, has, has been diminishing over and over with time. Did you did you like go back into history and sort of follow the strands to where we got here and now? Somewhat. I think I was looking at well, I think for many of us that, that are sort of of this age, we've grown up in this milieu of hearing people say, well, that's how they get you. And right. um, everybody's out to sell something. All politicians lie. You can't trust any of them whatever the the them is in that case mm-hmm. within a particular space. And I think we've seen within the context of journalism, how in some cases, journalists and um, broader mass media have acted as, um, as those arbiters of truth to kind of take what politicians are saying and hold their feet to the fire, fact check them. And that was far easier when we had fewer competing news um, news outlets, and when the, the news media cycle was that much slower. I mean, now we talk about it being a continuous news cycle. I know when I was a kid, there were, in, in many markets, newspapers that came out twice a day. There was the morning news and the evening news. We've seen how in many markets that's condensed, um, and certainly as papers themselves have condensed and in time gone away, too, um, how that has all changed. Um, but yeah, as I said, I feel like this is a problem that maybe began in um, in politics and media and journalism and all, but now affects so many other industries, too. Yeah, I mean, another thing that struck me when you were first starting is this: is that like there is a relationship between trust and truth, right? And mm-hmm. that when truth breaks down, it seems like trust breaks down as well. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a a fair statement. I think as we as we wrangle with the concept of truth, we also have to address that. 
I keep using this phrase like the arbiters of truth. Uh, We used Mm -hmm. to have people that, you know, kind of the Walter Cronkites uh, of the day that could say, this is how it is. This is the the most important thing on which you need to focus. And this is the singular accurate perspective on it. And with the rise of social media, where anybody with a camera can think of themselves as a journalist – they're on the scene capturing what's going on, capturing the evidence of their own eyes. Um, a number of media outlets have had to wrangle with the fact that they're not sole arbiters of the truth, that now the the public with whom they used to converse by presenting the truth, now that public wants an active role in determining the truth and in telling their story too. Because I think that's the other side of it. The truth used to be a narrow thing where editors said, this is what's important. Here's where you should focus. The other stuff, not so much. And um, and that left a lot of stories out of the public record. I think that people in the majority didn't always have have their attention focused on the most important topics, maybe just what an editor found as the, the most popular topics and kind of popularity feeds on itself in that way. But now as, as social media has effectively, and the technologies behind social media have effectively democratized our access to the truth and the way we tell those stories, that's something that we need to wrangle with too. And so I see more and more in the future of of journalism, where historically it was kind of a a one-to-many kind of publication process. And through social media, we have many-to-many. I think the other side of democratizing access to the truth is that smart journalism doesn't just present the facts or present analysis on the facts, but it also presents the data and information behind the facts to effectively say to the audience, mm-hmm. don't trust us. Trust but verify. Here's here's where we've been focusing our research. You sift through the data too. And um, I think we see that in organizations like BuzzFeed and Vox. Um, recently spoke with um, some of the team from the markup about this. Data-driven journalism that exposes the data that basically says, don't believe us, you do the work too. Um, that builds a lot of confidence uh, to show your work and and to know that um, if your audience wants to dig in, they can. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> I could I could easily spend an entire podcast talking about the place of truth in our society and how that relates back to journalism, but mm-hmm. we'll save that for another time, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because boy, do I have some thoughts about that. Um, so, but you know, back to the topic of trust in general. Um, you know, e- in, in this talk, you talked about a framework with three parts, uh, voice, volume, and vulnerability. So um, how, you know, why, why did, how did you land on these pieces as important and how they, and how do they play into how people perceive um, what they do and don't trust? Mm. Well, I was finding as I was starting to see patterns around organizations that did have trust and then kind of players that that weren't doing so well in various industries, um, 
these were the common themes that I was coming across. And so then as I continued to do research to say, all right, this is my theory that we can build trust by focusing between these three areas. Does this framework hold up then as I look for, for other examples of it? Um, that, that was kind of my, my research process. But I started with seeing those patterns and kind of noticing them and, and then seeing if they, if it was idiosyncratic or if, if there was something there. And um, so what I mean by that framework, voice refers to how we communicate consistently over time and across channels, the, the kind of familiar way that brands communicate visually as well as verbally so that their audiences know they're in the right place, know that um, this is an organization that, um, that, that feels uh, feels like what they would expect. Um, and that even as this organization maybe is adding new services over time, tweaking and updating areas of its brand, it's still Jenny from the block. It's still the, the organization that you know. And there's comfort in that sense of, okay, this, this is the paper I grew up with, or this is the, the cereal that I know, or the, the makeup company that I trust, or, um, or the health service and health insurance company that I know and that knows me. There's some sense of comfort in that, but also confidence that, yeah, I am in the right place and I know how to use this company. I know how to get services from them. It's a, a measure of self-confidence that is mirrored then in confidence in the organization. By volume, I mean how um, how organizations determine how much to say, how much information to share, to help their their various audiences make decisions and feel good about the decisions they make. And again, this is both visual and verbal. In some organizations, it makes sense to say a lot, to share voluminous detail about. Uh, maybe how they craft their products, uh, usage information, the backstory behind recipes and all. And in other cases, it makes sense for an organization to say very little. In, in Trustworthy, I contrast the work of America's Test Kitchen and Gov.UK, how in both cases, they're trying to empower their respective audiences with information. Turns out in one uh, for one audience, they need a lot of information to feel good and feel like they know what they're doing. In the other case, gov.uk, British citizens don't want voluminous detail around how to access government services. They want to know kind of just the facts in a stepwise fashion and know when they reach the end of information so they don't have to go searching myriad other web pages across the, the government's web presence. Um, and that plays out visually as well, too. Some organizations, they need to offer detailed diagrams about how to put together their products or a lot of information in the context of imagery. And in other cases, they keep things more pared back. The third area where I feel like organizations can, can work to foster trust is how they lean into vulnerability or how they, they weigh the risk of prototyping in public, sharing more about who they are and their own evolution as an organization. Especially right now, so many companies, um, so many government entities, so many public health organizations, they're figuring it out as they go along. And that can be a shared 
humanizing way of building community, of saying, we're all in this together. Here's what we're trying to get right. Um, But for some organizations, they keep that all very close to the vest. They want to still maintain the image of maybe being bigger and more confident than they are. And they're finding out that that doesn't really go over too well with many audiences. We see how the effects of false bravado and empty promises play out, whether it's around um, updates around a a vaccine for for COVID-19 or around how organizations are remodeling their businesses in the face of Me Too. Are they actually um, putting the hard work in to examine corporate policies and and culture, or are they paying lip service to it through an ad campaign? Vulnerability takes work and exposes the, the inner workings of an organization, but that's really what we mean when we talk about the value of transparency and authenticity. And you don't achieve those things and you don't earn trust around them without putting yourself out there as an organization and maybe as individuals in an organization. Yeah, it's interesting because I know that like, I'm sure that you, you know, we're both consultants and I'm sure that we both had clients at one time or another who are more focused on their own internal needs than the needs of their users. And, you know, you can definitely feel that in their products some ways, but those ways can be really intangible. And so it's like, it's it's interesting to have a framework around which you can, um, you know, kind of classify or or figure out what's going on behind that. Right, right. And I think of examples like BuzzFeed, um, as they've rolled out different features across the across the site over the past several years, they'll oftentimes prototype in public, whether it's the new format for a map or um, a new way that they're approaching uh, gathering data in a story. They'll put it out there with simply, you know, a description of here's what we're trying to achieve. What do you think? And then have open comments below it, which is daring and scary and incredibly valuable in many organizations. Um, Similarly, they believe in bringing outside perspectives to the table. So some of their articles end with a, a little boxed feature called Outside Your Bubble, where they're cultivating and curating perspectives that are coming from the topic on Reddit and what people are saying on Twitter and Facebook and all to, to kind of say, we trust our audience enough that we want you to know more about this topic, more than just what we are saying here. So let's let's bring those other ideas to the table too. And then I think um, there's also the other angle on vulnerability when organizations choose to share more about about their personal growth or just about what makes them unique and different in an industry. And it serves to help their audience um, better understand who they are and also better self-identify. Penzies is a wonderful example of that. They're a spice company based in, in Milwaukee. Um, a spice retailer, I should say. And uh, shortly after the 2016 election, they published a long post on Facebook that said, here's what we think about the results of the election. And a candidate that is anti-immigration is um, opposed to the values by which we run our business. And uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people that gut reaction was to read it first and say, 
you're a spice company. What are you doing talking about your personal politics? Stay in your lane. And then they tried to preempt that by saying further down through the, the post that the the work of being in the spice industry is one that entails sourcing product from lots of other countries. Um, when, when they're marketing uh, Aleppo pepper, that's from a war-torn region, and we should discuss why that is the case. They also comment in that post, the CEO, Bill Penzi, in writing it, commented that um, the way we cook in America is due to the story of immigration and that so many of our recipes come here on the backs of immigrants and then become a part of our, our national story. And so he was saying, you know what, policies that make immigration more difficult, um, they're not in line with the, the policies and the values of our company. This is how we feel about it. If you feel this way too, here's how you can support us and here's how you can support efforts to, to be on the right side of history here. And they got a lot of pushback. It was a risky, risky move for them. And I don't know that it was a very calculated move, but um, mm. they lost customers. They ended up gaining far more customers than they lost though. And it turned out every time they posted similarly on, on various social issues that have kind of come to light over the past few years, they saw a huge spike in their traffic and in their sales. A lot of people now shop from Penzies that aren't home cooks, that, that don't know a lot about the products that they're buying until they read about them there, but they think, I want to support this. And somebody I know is going to need a birthday or a holiday present soon. So I'm getting it from Penzies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting how all of those elements really tie in together and how much you talked a little bit earlier about consistency, right? And how about how consistency and or versus inconsistency really tie into that um, as well, because, you know, I'm thinking about it in, in like you were talking about public prototyping and, and like people don't like being surprised, but if you frame it properly, then they don't mind it. Um, but, you know, as opposed to like, you know, everybody's complaining whenever Facebook or Twitter use Twitter's UI changes and they're very surprised by it and they have no idea why it happened and no background on it and stuff like that. And those things create problems with trust as well. Right. Yeah. Because as you said, nobody likes those surprises. And our initial reaction is, you know, how dare you change this thing that is my thing where I've built my network and this is where I see my friends and now you're changing it on me. And I just think like if if Facebook, if Twitter, if any organization that is anticipating change can share the process getting there with their audience, that would be so much better for everyone involved, for oh, the yeah. designers and the developers, as well as for the users. And again, that takes a, an investment in vulnerability. But um that's how we we draw our users, how we draw our communities close by exposing the product roadmap, by saying, here's where we think we're succeeding now, but these are changes that we want to make. Here's what's coming down the pike. What do you think? Here's how we're how we're getting to that final end product where we're where we're moving toward right now. Um, by gathering feedback along the way and bringing your users into the process of creation, um, whether it's by offering feedback or simply informing them, uh, hosting open houses and listening sessions, um, all of that does, it, it all works together to help 
build more confidence in your audience. It's certainly a show of respect that you want to expose this process to them, um, but it also it helps them feel more confident that they know where things are going, that there aren't going to be changes that take them by surprise. Um, and it also helps to build loyalty. And I think I've seen that certainly in my own work as a, as a content strategist. When I, I mean, maybe like 10 years ago, if I was working with a client to roll out new editorial style guidelines, I used to say that it would feel kind of like we would write them and then Heisman them over and drop <laughs> them into the company. And and then I'm sure they got used a ton. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't do that anymore. And I think uh, most content strategists don't take that approach anymore. Instead, what I've found works better is to bring close the people that will be using those style guidelines, convene listening sessions, and I'll facilitate workshops to make sure that I'm hearing from people what might be the challenge or issue with updating things to be in sentence case when previously we've used title case everywhere, or the challenges that we might see in in adopting a certain punctuation style or new phrasing around things. Um, I want people to be able to share their concerns so that as we arrive at consensus for those changes, they feel like they can champion those changes as well, that they've been a part of the process, not simply recipients of the change. And I think for organizations, when um, at a corporate level, they can take that same approach of saying, here's where we're going and create brand champions along the way that can help to evangelize the change. That works really, really well for corporations, as well as for government initiatives, too. I hope to see more of that moving forward, more more transparency around the missteps, maybe in vaccine production, um, and more more transparency and openness about the challenges, because false bravado gets us nowhere. And I think we all have more confidence when we can see how people respond to challenges and then rise above them through the work. I mean, one of the things you've talked about, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is America's Test Kitchen, right? And mm -hmm. you and I, you know, in this talk that I was listening to earlier, you talk about how they have fostered trust um, versus how maybe other recipe, recipe or cooking centric sites have or haven't fostered trust. Like, can you talk a little bit through about what you found there? Sure. Well, one of the things that um, really struck me when I sat down with uh, with Jack Bishop, the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen, um, we were sitting at their offices. This was a couple of years ago now um, in his office, kind of off of a, a larger room before we kind of walked through the kitchens themselves. And um, one of the points that he made was that they're in the business of of fostering success because success breeds confidence. And they wanted to help people feel confident, whether they were very skilled home chefs, whether they were, were people that were just picking up a recipe for a new, uh, a new dish for the first time, and they didn't really know their way around a kitchen yet, if they were a little bit uncertain about getting the ingredients. They didn't want to be coming at them with a bunch of technical jargon or confusing and and varied layouts of information or lists of ingredients that would be really difficult to get regardless of where you live. So they keep that all in mind when, when they're thinking about how to formulate a recipe, 
how how they're testing it or recommending different ingredients or tools or specialized equipment that you might need. Um, and they go through that process of kind of testing all the different variables. You know, the stereotype is like that they're 43 different ways to make toast. We went through all of them just to be able to recommend the best one for you. Um, and they go through that process of making the mistakes, having different people try out different techniques so that they know that whether you're very, very tall or very, very short, you're going to have success using this particular piece of kitchen equipment. Um, or as they're putting together a recipe, they might find like the perfect ingredient, but realize that it's very difficult to source. So they'll recommend the next best alternative uh, because they know that that will that will suit the needs of the majority of their audience. Um, and they've built trust through that by, by exposing their process, explaining how they, how they reach their conclusions so that a reader knows that if they want to replicate the same process, they can. But usually they have enough confidence in the brand in being able to see that they do have this process, that they don't need to replicate it themselves at home. It's kind of just nice knowing that the research is there. Um, and other, other publishers in, um, in the cooking space might focus more on elevating the perspectives of one particular ego. Um, this is not that kind of brand. At America's Test Kitchen, the, the ego that they look to elevate is that of the home cook. That's the, the sort of hero that they're trying to create. And um, by offering content that is the right level of detail, to meet the needs of different users, the right volume of information, depending on the device that you're using to access the recipe, um, the device or, or uh, content forum, I guess, to, to access the recipe or platform. Um, and then being so vulnerable as to share the mistakes and missteps and what they learned along the way, they're not presenting kind of polished, final, uh, nothing bubbles over here. Uh, kind of cooking. Instead, they're saying warts and all. Here's what's happening. Here's how we got to good results, and here's how you can too. So America's Test Kitchen is interesting because it's very it's very focused on users, on normal everyday people. Um, and you know, you've you've spent uh, and you know, and that's that's very much what you know in in the focus of the podcast has been, and when we talk about communities as well. Um, so you know, I I know that a lot of places you in the book you talk about um, trust as it applies to working content strategy and working with brands, but how do you see these principles or this framework applying more generally towards the ways that people gather and interact with each other every day? Well, I think um, it's funny how you say gather and interact with each other because now the way we gather, <laughs> right. hopefully if you're doing it right, <laughs> is is online um, and maybe with with more of a view into your coworkers' life than than you've ever had before, quite literally, maybe into their living room or into their dining room, um, and uh, and kind of gathering a, a sense of who they are that way. And of course, so much vulnerability comes with that. And I think the way that we can support each other, um, if it's coworkers or fellow community members, and the way that businesses support us is by right now investing in the things that still enable confidence, empowerment, um, 
and good decision making. So brands shouldn't be rolling out big monumental earth-shaking changes right now in the voice that they use, in the in the look and feel of their platform. Now is the time to reassure people with familiarity. And I think also with the way that we engage with each other, now is the time to offer more information, to over-explain things, you know, whether you're giving a, a status report to a colleague or um, or trying to explain something to a friend. Now is when more information that is well triaged can be helpful so that people can kind of look through the details and and know that they're on the right path. I think um, something that a challenge that I've seen certainly through communication on Zoom and moving back and forth between like Zoom and Slack, for example, is that um, we can best support each other when we communicate multiple ways because oftentimes we're communicating now with um, lower fidelity means than if we were gathering with friends face to face and we had body language and emphasis and um, and various other ways of kind of adding color to our language. So if that's the case, yeah, there it's a good thing now to be able to explain something maybe in an email or over Slack and then follow up on Zoom um, so that you can offer color commentary that way too. Because some people are visual learners. Some people prefer to get information um, verbally and most of us are a mix of that. So I think there are different ways that we can support each other by by offering more detail and accommodating more learning styles and then keeping things familiar um, maintaining the language that that people have come to know and trust. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think I think about you know, you talk about consistency, vulnerability, all of those things seem to apply just as well to interpersonal relationships as they do to corporate brands. I mean, one of the things we've talked about a lot on the podcast, for instance, is expectations management. Right, like people in their communities don't want to be surprised when things happen. Um, that like, because a decision gets made because somebody gets kicked out of the community or, you know, because, because, you know, somebody said something that wasn't responded to or whatever, you know, people, people want to understand the rules and the groups that they gather in. And it seems like a lot of that kind of thing feeds back to the kind of themes that you have in the book as well. Yeah. And I think making those rules clear, consistent and accessible, uh, those go so far um, to then maintaining constructive and positive personal relationships. And I think you're really onto something there because I think that it's something that applies um, whether we're talking about very structured formal relationships that might be governed by a contract, like a, a contract that an agency might have with its client. Um, certainly, uh, and this is, this is something that Mike Montero speaks about a lot, when we have more detail in our contracts to spell out what happens if things go south, um, what happens when timing is off or people don't pay when they're supposed to and all, or if we go too many rounds of review or, or anything like that. When we spell out those expected norms in advance, it means that we've discussed them in advance and people know what to expect and can then act in a way that is most beneficial for, for everyone and for the project itself. And I think that applies in those very structured corporate contexts. It certainly applies in communities online and off. 
when we when we know the rules that are in play, um, and maybe when we can have the discussion around those rules and contribute to those rules, it allows us to behave in accordance with those rules. And I think right now, um, I certainly see it play out with how people interact in in small towns. I know around here, there have been um, there were a lot of questions around what to expect with the election process and when town hall would be open, how voting would go, would there be um, additional hours? And then in the midst of a pandemic, um, what should we expect as far as access to polling places? And it seemed like the towns where, where residents were on top of saying, we need to know this, in, in advance, and then where town government was involved in communicating those things ahead of time and with clarity and consistency, um, things like the election went much more smoothly. Um, and I think that that's something then that, that we can emulate across other styles of community too, whether it's, it's a Slack group or, um, or a Facebook group, or even the the conventions in a conference that is now going online. We need to know what are the right behaviors if we want people to model those behaviors. Right, because the last thing you want is for an already tense situation to be further um, exacerbated by confusion or um, or a lack of of predictability. Right. Right. And I think um like one of the one of the things that I always think about in the context of online communities is if we go back to the the simple model of what happens at a party. Well, mm-hmm. usually when we used to be able to do those types of things. <laughs> we still can there but it might be like a spreadsheet party. I know that's a thing now. <laughs> or Zoom happy hour even. But still within those those contexts Maybe you get an invitation ahead of time. The nomenclature in the invitation, the look and feel of it, are you getting it over the phone or is it an email or is it something that comes to you on paper in in the U.S. Postal Service? That starts to set the tone. So you know, all right, what to expect? Who else will be there? The the general vibe, how you should dress for it. Is it um, a potluck? Should you be bringing a dish? If so, how fancy should it be? Is this going to be a picnic or a cocktail party? We set the stage in all of that kind of ancillary messaging that goes on around an event. And of course, that can also be in the kind of messaging that that people receive in the confirmation email when they're signing up for a community or a newsletter or something for the first time, in any error messages, opt-out language, et cetera. Um, And then when someone gets to the party, there's oftentimes a host that is maybe walking around, introducing people, starting conversations, making sure your drink is filled, you know where the food is, et cetera. That has to happen in our online spaces too. And we do that to a degree with the kind of nomenclature and messaging and pre-filled fields that might occur when, or that someone might see when they're setting up their profile for the first time. But having that um Having that be a designed experience with the right content to set the stage, that helps to make sure the rest of the party continues to go well. And that as more guests arrive, the people that are already there, again, at the party or in the Slack group, can continue to model the right behavior so that folks know, when I get here, should I introduce myself in the general channel? Um, how long should I lurk before I post? Uh, what's, what's appropriate here? Because 
I think as much as as parents might have told us when we were little not to follow the crowd and to to be individuals, we still do all grow up and certainly as adults wanting to to fit into a degree so that we do the right things, that we we can maintain the appropriate behavior, um, not to just uh, be one of the crowd, but ultimately so that we can be good participants in community. That's not a politically correct uh, perspective <laughs> or not. I think it's simply a matter of how do you avoid offending other people? That's the purpose of manners. And um, and that can be also the purpose of, of content and design as we're building these experiences. Well, I um I love this topic and I love the idea of the, you know, the way that trust um it doesn't isn't isn't permeating the world around us today. And I'm really, really looking forward to your book and I really appreciate you coming on today. Um how can people find you on social media and uh, tell us what's going on uh, as far as being able to find your book when it's released? Great. Well, uh, you can find me uh, everywhere on social media, um, especially on Twitter at M Bloomstein. Um, and you can learn more about the book by go to my site, uh, appropriate Inc dot com slash trustworthy. And you'll see a little bit about it there. Drop your email there um, so that you get my newsletter that is very infrequent, but we'll tell you about the pre-order, give you excerpts, um, upcoming readings and appearances and whatnot, probably on Zoom um, and uh, and go with it from there. Because um, so soft launch, quiet about this, but do want to share with folks that um, Trustworthy is now available for pre-order, at least in the hardcover, and the ebook will be coming shortly as well on Amazon or visit bookshop.org to support your favorite indie bookstore. That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on today, Margo. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to This Must Be The Place. You can find out more or subscribe at thismustbetheplacepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at tmbtp underscore podcast. Our theme was composed by Will from America, and our logo was designed by Marissa Epstein. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.